Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's Dry Cleaner Cast, I'm joined by author Eric Hasseltine. Eric is the NSA's former director of research, so he's very knowledgeable about all things electronic surveillance and SIGINT. And we're discussing Eric's book, The Spy in Moscow Station, that takes a look at a 1970s investigation into a suspected bugging operation at the American Embassy in Moscow. So for anybody who's interested in electronic surveillance, this could be the episode for you. Just before we begin, if you enjoy the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. And also don't forget my film, which is my first attempt at spy fiction. The Dry Cleaner is now out on Amazon and iTunes. If you make a purchase through our Amazon link on the website, a little bit of the money that you spend goes towards helping the podcast. If you click on the image in your app now, you'll be able to see a link to our website, which is drycleanercast.co.uk forward slash watch the film. On there, you'll find links to both um, and the American and British Amazons and iTunes. If you're not in America or Britain, that's absolutely fine. If you just search the Dry Cleaner film on iTunes or Amazon, the film should appear. Uh, don't try, don't just type in the dry cleaner because, especially on Amazon, because you'll get kind of cleaning products come up, and I'm not even joking. So, uh, so there we go. One last thing as well, on a personal note, I would like to just say thank you so much for bearing with me. As you know, or regular listeners will know, this has been quite a difficult time because I lost my father back in September, and so as you have probably noticed the podcast has been a little bit erratic over the last couple of months so in january i'm going to be recording some new episodes and we will be back to our monthly status in february and february onwards so there's some great new content coming for 2020 i've got uh, hopefully a very interesting year ahead with regards to the podcast and uh, i just want to say thank you so much for your support during this difficult time because it really has been a very difficult time so thank you very much um also I hope you have a lovely Christmas and New Year's. I hope you have a great time. Um, Have a good rest. Make sure you watch plenty of spy movies. Read lots of spy books because there's a lot of interesting content out there. And I hope this episode sees you through nicely to the end of the year. So thank you very much. You take care and I'll see you in 2020. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. Eric, welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. Great to be here. Just before we begin, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I went into aerospace doing flight simulators, which led me into virtual reality, which eventually landed me at the Walt Disney Company working on virtual reality. And I was at the R&D organization there and was had risen to the 
level of executive vice president in charge of R&D for Disney when I got recruited to do the same job at NSA. And while I was at NSA, I met one of the advisory board members who told me a story and I was badgering that guy for years to let me write a book about it. And finally he did. And that book is uh, The Spy in Moscow Station. Excellent. Well, it's, it's a really good book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, I mean, in some ways you've answered my question, but how, how did this book kind of come about and how did you go about researching a book like this? Well, the book came about for two reasons. One is the compelling story of this NSA officer who fights an uphill battle for six years to get to the truth about a deadly leak in our security in our Moscow station. But the second one is the lead character, Charles Gandy, who you can think of as a George Smiley as a geek. He infected me with the importance of the issues that are discussed in the book. And while I was at NSA, and later while I was the Associate Director of National Intelligence in charge of science and technology for the whole U.S. intelligence community, I took up the torch, as it were, and did my best to advance understanding of the threat posed by the issues raised in the book. And I would like to say I was successful, but I wasn't. And so Charles Gandy and I decided to do the book in order to build awareness of the issue. And succinctly stated, the issue is the Russians are way, way better than us at certain kinds of spy tradecraft that we've let go and it poses a grave risk today. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the points you illustrate really well in the book is how, um, number one, Russia gets very much underestimated or did, um, and how they seem to specialize on certain types of things and kind of master it. If you look at it from the Russians point of view, they have $1 to spend for every 13 NATO has Mm. on. So the way they stay even with us, to the extent they can, is they pick their battles. So they line up their strengths against our weaknesses. And our biggest weakness is, is our communication networks and cyber systems. They're extremely difficult to defend. We're extremely dependent upon them. And so they've chosen to become the best in the world at penetrating and taking them down. So it doesn't matter that we have super high-tech weapons. If they can't communicate with each other, uh, we can't use them against them. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we dive into your book, let's just talk a little bit about the main protagonist, Charles Gandhi. Can you just tell us a bit about his sort of background, his story? He grew up in a poor rural town in northern Louisiana called Homer, Louisiana. And his family didn't have much money, but he had a passion in electronics. And that passion became the focus of his career after World War II when he saw a video of the FBI using what he thought was a radar dish to listen in on German spies. And he resolved at that point, he was about 11 or so, to become an engineer that would protect America against foreign enemies like the Nazis. And he never dreamed that he could do it. He had a learning disability. Uh, Most of his teachers thought he'd never make college material and thought he was dumb. And so he managed to get out of high school and actually get a degree in engineering and ultimately was able to live his dream 
doing just what he'd seen in the movie for NSA. It's interesting the learning difficulty side of things because I mean I I could relate to that because I've I've um I I was diagnosed with um a sort of form of dyslexia later in my life and um and it and I and I think about my school experiences and how sort of uh, affected they were by that and how people's attitudes can really affect you and it was really interesting just seeing how how he used that and he was used to adversity and kind of um still carried on and sort of pushed forward and I really admired that in him. Well, I think that he learned two things based on his own dyslexia. I diagnosed him a couple of years ago. No one had up until that time. I did some tests on him. Um, but uh, he learned, one, that how to get around his reading disability. But um, he learned a much bigger lesson, which is that you can get around huge obstacles in your life. And he t- has taken that attitude into everything that he does which is the main reason that he ultimately gets to the bottom of the mystery in the book. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back in time to so we're going to go back in time to 1977 and um so two Russian CIA assets have been arrested and they eventually were executed by the Soviet authorities. Can you just talk to us a bit about this time and the questions that were raised by the loss of these CIA assets and the consequences of those losses? So it's quite a loaded question. <laughs> Well, first of all, one of the assets I describe in the book was ex- didn't, wasn't executed. He committed suicide. The other one was sentenced to death, but actually never was executed. And that's something of a mystery. It raises the question of, was he really ours or was he always theirs? You know, uh, we found later with the East Germans that almost every one of our assets turned out to have been a dangle, a double agent that was kind of offered up to us that we bid on and then turned out later to be working for East German intelligence. So in the spy game, it's mm. a hollow mirror. You never really know what you're looking at. Yeah. But uh, there were three others that we don't talk much about in the book at all that were executed. And so there were almost a half a dozen between 1977 and 1978 that were being arrested, interrogated, in some cases executed, in some cases suicide. And the question is, why? Clearly, there's a leak somewhere that's revealing their identities. What is the leak? And um, the chief of station at the time of CIA station, a guy named Gus Hathaway, uh, was desperate because of the devastating loss of those assets, which basically made us blind a time when it was very difficult for us to be blind because this is the height of the Cold War. It's right before Afghanistan. I mean, you could look at us being surprised by the Russians going into Afghanistan and say, why were we surprised? Well, one of the reasons might have been that we didn't have any human assets to tell us. What had happened was Stansfield Turner, who was the director of CIA, said, look, Running human assets in Moscow is so dangerous, we're shutting it down. We're not doing it at all. Yeah, We're done. And, of course, Gus Hathaway, who was a CIA station chief, and it was his job to run human assets, was not happy about this. And he was desperate to get the authority to turn back on his espionage operations. And to do that, he needed to prove that he plugged the leak. Yeah. And, um, and there was a fear in the CIA station in, that was within the embassy, that they may have been compromised by sort of electronic surveillance. And um, and so Gus Hathaway had to, he 
controversially suggested to the CIA to reach out to a specialist in the NSA, which turned out to be Charles Gandhi. Can you talk to us a little bit about the why it was controversial to reach out to the NSA for the CIA? Well, bureaucratic rivalries are normal in any big enterprise, and the intelligence community is no exception. The NSA was created and began as kind of CIA's little brother. So they had a pretty good relationship in their first years. But under Admiral Inman, who was running NSA at the time of the story began, NSA's prestige and power had grown exponentially. And they were really starting to push their weight around. For example, in the book, I published a memo that has been declassified in which CIA airs a long list of grievances against NSA. For example, they don't tell us the raw intelligence, they just tell us their interpretation of it because they want to control sources and methods. And so there was a lot of bureaucratic turf fighting and interagency rivalry, so much so that in Washington at the time, it was called the War of Admirals. It was Admiral Inman running NSA, Admiral Turner running CIA, and Admiral Inman told me the only thing the two could agree on is that they didn't agree on anything. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the other thing is that in the CIA, you have different departments. The most prestigious one is the one that most people would think of as housing the spies. Mm. It's called the Directorate of Operations. And they're never called spies. They're called case officers. In the book, I point out that a spy is someone that we hire to steal secrets from us in a foreign country, usually a foreign national. The the case officer or intelligence officer is the one who runs or handles them. And uh, the directorate of operations at CIA is the most prestigious, most secretive and closed. So they don't like typically going out and asking help from anybody if they don't have to because they don't want to reveal secrets. Yeah. Also, they're very insular. And so it was especially remarkable that this uh, CIA DO case officer, Gus Hathaway, would reach outside of his own directorate, let alone to NSA. But he was desperate. Yeah. And as you were saying earlier, that um, the CIA headquarters had now banned um, any operations involving running human assets in Moscow. So for, for Gus Hathaway, there was a loss at sort of stake with this with this situation at the embassy. Yeah, and he believed, and I agree with him, that technology spying can only get you so far. Satellites, uh, what NSA does, and so forth. At some point, the only way to get the information is to have a human on the ground Mm. and tell you firsthand what's going on. And if you don't have it, it's a severe disability. Yeah, because human intelligence sort of, in the best sense, provides context to to maybe uh, information you've uh, got electronically. Right. And the other thing is validation. It's mm. important, especially depending on the consequences of a piece of intelligence, that you know it's reliable and valid. The intelligence game is far from certain. It's never clear. There's ne- it's almost never a smoking gun or X marks the spot. And just before we move into Gandhi's investigation in Moscow, what was also the State Department's sort of attitude towards both the CIA and the NSA? Loathing, hatred, disgust. You have to understand that in Washington, D.C., we have a saying, where you stand is where you sit, Mm. meaning the position that you take depends on your role in the government. And the State Department's role is to make friends with foreign countries and individuals in foreign countries. And 
having an embassy where there are people spying on the people you're supposed to be making friends with doesn't help in their view. And so right away, there's a built-in animosity of whose mission is what. One, the State Department views uh, foreign entities as people to build a relationship with and make friends with and try to understand and let them understand you. Whereas on the national security side, you have people who view the host country as an adversary, as a target. Mm -hmm. And those are two fundamentally almost incompatible missions. So you start there. And also, you know, the kind of person that goes into State Department. Uh, these are kind of academic types, very, very bright. They pass exams that are very competitive. The jobs to be a foreign service officer are very competitive. Um, but they, they're more like, uh, I don't know, academics or history majors or policy people, whereas national security is much more like the military. So, you know, you look at the world very differently depending on what your mission is, and they're constantly fighting each other. You know, State Department feels that intelligence is always ticking off the adversary, whereas the intelligence folks feel that the State Department are clueless when it comes to security, don't care about it, and are actually dangerous when it comes to compromising secrets. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could paint a picture of how the security worked at um, the at the, the Russian embassy. Um, you know, who was because the State Department through the is it the DSS are responsible for the kind of security of the actual building um, with the U.S. Marines. Is that right? Can you paint us a sort of picture of, of how that works? Well, it isn't simple, and that is an issue. The physical security of the building and inside the secure places where sensitive things happen, uh, is the Marine Corps. But in addition to that, embassies hire local militia to guard the grounds and so forth. And uh, the, in Russia, I believe it was the MVD, which was not KGB, but might as well have been. Mm. So you have the Marine Guards who have physical security, you know, armed guards, basically. <clears throat> and you have them augmented by local nationals. In fact, usually they're more local nationals or what we call FSNs. Um, the security of the State Department diplomatic operations are the responsibility of the regional security officer who's a State Department security official. And there is such an individual in the book called John Moshevit. CIA and let's say other national security entities have their own separate facilities and their own separate security. And uh, each of them have their own communication channels back to Washington. And those are maintained separately. So in theory, there is a security wall between what State Department does and what the intelligence services do. But that is uh, uh, that wall is pretty permeable. Yeah. And can you talk us through... Um, what were the sort of known KGB electronic surveillance methods prior to Gandhi's trip? So you have um, all sorts of interesting sort of techniques. It's safe to say that the Russians pioneered the most advanced technologies. In the early 50s, just by accident, a bug was found in the Great Seal of the United States hanging above the ambassador's office. And this thing was a lollipop-sized 
implant that had been put in a seal given to the ambassador years earlier by some Soviet uh, schoolgirls. And this thing was a remarkable feat of technology. It was really the world's first RFID. And, um, you know, everybody has an RFID, like in your key fob or your traffic pass or something like that, your hotel key. And the way they work, a lot of them have no power at all, but they respond to an interrogation of a radar signal. So that if I beam my radar at this RFID and I turn on and off a gate inside that at a certain rate, the reflection from that RFID back to the radar goes up and down with ones and zeros as the gate is opened and closed. Yeah. So essentially, you can think of it like holding a mirror to the sunlight and winking it in and out of your line of sight to create a kind of a code flash, right? Yeah. Like the old signaling with mirrors, except it's done instead of reflecting light, it reflects the radar. Well, the bug, also called the thing in the Moscow embassy back in the early 50s, got voice in this way. I, I described the technology. It's probably a little beyond the scope of this interview. But basically, as people talk, the volume of a radar signal goes up and down that you see, and you can reconstruct voice with astonishing accuracy. And no bug-sweeping technology of the day would have detected it. And so the Russians have beamed microwaves at the embassy ever since. Probably they're still doing it to this day. There was a big controversy over it in the 70s when State Department officials complained of health problems. And yeah. it, they tied it potentially to the microwaves that were being constantly beamed at the at the embassy. And you see hints of things that might be like that today, like in Cuba. Mm, mm. Recently, U.S. and Canadian diplomats complained of severe problems, and no one can figure out why. And it's kind of amusing. Well, amusing is a not the right term because it's tragic. But back then, you had State Department and CIA officials testifying, well, we don't know what this is, meaning the radar flooding. And you have the same type of officials saying the same thing today with the Cuba radiation. And people like me and Gandhi look at that and just shrug and go, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that Cuban thing's really quite interesting. It's still, is it still a bit of a mystery? There's still different theories on what exactly caused the problems they faced. Officially, it's a mystery. And yeah. I don't claim to have any inside information on it. So I got to be a little careful on that because they don't. Yeah, fair enough. Know. But just on its face is, is kind of interesting. You know, we, we have these strange effects going on all these years later from the 1950s. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at foreign intelligence services, they have a certain kind of hand or fingerprint. You know, uh, there's a famous saying that you can tell the lion by its paw. Yeah. And, you know, that Cuba stuff sure looks like a Russian paw to me. Mm. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know. I, I actually, you know, I'm no longer active duty, so I can't say. But there are striking similarities. And, yeah. you know, when you have something that works, you just keep using it. And uh, the Russians have always been better at us than this stuff. Gandhi himself told me that he learned everything he knew about this sort of thing from them. And he so he found it quite amazing when later in the story – he actually finds proof of what's going on and presents it to people. And they say, well, the Russians 
aren't that smart. You might be able to do that, but there's no way backward Ivan could ever do that. And he looked at people and he goes, what are you talking about? They taught me everything I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, is it is a dangerous thing to underestimate your adversary, isn't it? Well, Napoleon did. Hitler did. And I'm old enough to remember Sputnik. I saw it. I grew up near Death Valley. And my father took me outside and showed me this light going across the dark desert sky and said, that is a Russian satellite, son. And they got to space first. They orbited a man around the earth first. So space is one area where they were better than us for a while. And we continually underestimate them. Yeah. You know, it's a real problem. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, let's, let's look at, um, Gandhi's trip to inspect the embassy in Moscow. Um, can you can you just sort of tell us about sort of um, you know his the build up to that trip? So he he went to the CIA um, to be briefed about it, and then sort of tell us about what he sort of found when he got to the embassy and what the sort of security situation was like. Well, I'll start with your last question first. Yeah, he, he called about the security. He found. He had KGB tail inside the embassy where there weren't supposed to be any Russian nationals in the secure part of the embassy. So right away, he knew that something was wrong. And of course, it was no mystery if the MVD guards, the Interior Ministry militia guards, are the ones guarding it. Yeah. Most of the employees at the embassy are Russian. Then, duh, there are going to be compromises. So uh, that's the first thing he found. Um, mm. The second thing he found is that they had really no clue what was going on with the radar flooding and other phenomena that they were seeing. And he knew exactly what they were for reasons I won't go into, but he absolutely knew what was going on. Um, and so just so happened that while he was there, they were breaking into a so-called chimney. And there's a little backstory there. A year, the, the prior year, a woman who was temporarily in one of the apartments in the South Annex heard some scraping noises in the chimney. She called the Marines to look to see that birds weren't being trapped in there because she was worried about the birds. The Marines looked in there, couldn't find anything, and said, oh, by the way, that chimney doesn't connect to any fireplaces. And this is the staggering thing. The building, which was built by German prisoners of war and opened in the early 50s, this chimney, but no one bothered to think, well, wait a minute, there are no fireplaces, so what's that chimney for? It's a staggering thing. You know, over 20 years, they're using this building, and here's a chimney, but no one scratched their head and said, well, wait a minute, why is there a chimney? There are no fireplaces. So uh, two security officers are in the courtyard, and one of them says, we should break into that chimney and see what's in there. That night, a fire broke out in the upper reaches of the embassy that devastated much of the embassy and completely put off the investigation of the chimney. <clears throat> and later, KGB defector Viktor Shemov told me that that fire had been intentionally set. Yeah. And so one conclusion is that the Russians who had microphones everywhere in the embassy, which was another problem that Gandhi was concerned about, uh, had heard that conversation and caused the fire. And so it wasn't until the time of Gandhi's visit in the spring of 1978 that they broke into the chimney and lo and behold, they find something in there that is a complete mystery. It's some technology the Russians had put in there 
It was aimed at the ambassador's office, but no one could figure out what it was until they gave it to Gandhi. Mm. Well, could you talk to us about the sort of, because it was quite, so what he discovered was this antenna, and it was, there's quite an ordeal to actually getting at the antenna and then even being able to sort of test it and, um, and sort of discover what its capabilities are. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Well, the antenna on the surface looked like an FM radio or TV antenna. It's what we call a doggy beam antenna. Mm. It's got a long member and then running at right angles, aluminum rod. Yeah. That's what we call a Yagi antenna. But he looked at it and he saw immediately because of the way the antenna was fed that it wasn't that, that it was actually three separate antennas. And he also looked at where it was pointed. And it was clear to him that it was pointed exactly at the ambassador's office. And it was actually using the metal roof of the embassy to channel RF energy. So right away, he knew that the Russians had a listening device that was picking up something from the ambassador's office. What he didn't know was with a data or text or was it voice or both? Mm. So um, he says to them, look, yeah, there's a whole interesting set in the story. And you asked about my research. I dug into declassified CIA documents, State Department documents, and archives of the Carter Library. And I was able to find all of the cable traffic that is at one time highly classified, but has been declassified. And it's a blow-by-blow hour-by-hour account of the communication between Washington and Moscow when this thing was found. So the reader gets to be a passenger of history, just literally observing what was transpiring in message traffic during that time. Yeah, and it's truly fascinating that it's because uh, it, in you know, like you know, with movies and things, people think that you discover something and it's quite straightforward. But it became quite complicated because there are debates about um, was it in Russian territory or American territory and all sorts of stuff. Is it booby trapped? If we take it out, yeah. will, we, will we be killed? And that's the thing that what Gandhi was doing was quite dangerous. Uh, as I say in the book, a number of NSA officers have been killed doing what he did because the Russians put various booby traps and explosives and other things that would maim or kill if you look too closely at what they were doing. And in fact, there was a tunnel leading to this false chimney that was booby trapped with uh, tripwires that I describe in the book. But anyhow, so this is where uh, there's a little bit of sex in the book. And one of the scenes where this happens is when Gandhi says to John Lashevit, the state security officer, sneak the antenna undercover to my quarters at midnight and at the stroke of midnight, knock on my door and give me this thing because I don't want anybody, i.e. Russians, looking at you bringing this thing over to me. Yeah. So at the stroke of midnight, exactly, a knock at the door, Gandhi opens the door and instead of the security officer, he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen in his life. And his eyes are drawn to her blouse because there doesn't appear to be a brassiere beneath the uh, blouse. Writers, you know, we want to know the texture. What what was her eye color? What was her hair color? Did she remind you of a movie star? What was she wearing? What was in the hallway? Tell me about the aromas. You know how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paint the scene and put people in the scene. He says, well, you know, Eric, honestly, I only remember two things about her. Um. You know, that's what he was staring at. But anyhow, so she 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 coincidentally shows up when the antenna was supposed to be there. And 
She says, uh, I used to live in this room. I forgot something. Can I come in? And he says, no, there's nothing here. You can't come in. <coughs> you got to go. And uh, <clears throat> she says, well, she produces a bottle of vodka <coughs> that she had behind her uh, and says, well, uh, I'd like to practice my English. Can I come in for a drink? And at this point, he steps out into the hallway to get her to go away. And he sees a KGB guy <clears throat> plastered against the wall guarding her. And she knows that the game is over and she just blanches. He said that spots of color appeared on her face. <clears throat> and she ran away and the guard followed her. So obviously, somehow the Russians knew that he was going to get the antenna. And a few minutes later, it actually showed up. And uh, so he starts to study the antenna. And he discovers that what it's doing is nothing short of genius. He just, his jaw dropped when he figured out how the thing worked. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about what he found? What did it do? Um, you know, how was it working? Well, the Russians are really good at what we call hiding in plain sight. Hmm. If you go back to the uh, seal, the great seal with the thing in it, the reason no bug detector could find it is that they were constantly irradiating it at frequencies that were used for other things. So there's this tool that NSA and you know a lot of people use to study the RF spectrum called the spectrum analyzer. And basically what it is, it's a receiver that shows you how much energy is at different radio frequencies. Yeah. And so if you're looking for a bug, you turn this thing on, and if the bug is radiating, you can see a spike, and you go, hey, what's that? And then you investigate it, and you direction find it, and you find the bug. That's how you find bugs, or one way you find bugs. Yeah. But no, but you see, if all you're hearing is a normal FM radio or cop traffic or firefighters or whatever, taxi drivers, you think, oh, well, that, that's part of the normal background. Well, what the Russians had done, what he discovered was – when he listened to what the Russians were listening to, this, this antenna had a box attached to it about the size of a cigarette carton. Mm. And he didn't want to open it because he thought it might get him killed. But he plugged it up and powered it up and listened to what the Russians were listening to. And what he found astonished him in that there were two five megawatt TV stations that generated what we would think of. And I don't want to get too technical, but if, if you, uh, take uh, two tones on a piano and you play them mm. at the same time, you get each tone and then you, you get what's called a beat, which is a sum and difference tone. And the same thing happens with very powerful radio frequencies in a receiver. Uh, for technical reasons, you, you don't just get frequency one and frequency two if you've got two radio transmitters. You get multiple other frequencies that occur because of mixing effects that happen in the receiver. And so any bug sweeping receiver would be overpowered by that effect and it would see these kind of beat tones or what we call intermodulation tones. And uh, uh, so if you see those, you go, well, that's normal. Of course you're going to yeah. see those. Well, that is where the Russians hid their signal because when he listened to this thing, there were no beat tones. They were completely gone, which is like that never happens in a normal mm. receiver. So he goes, ah, they're quieting those so they can hide the bug signal or whatever the bug was in those spaces so that if anybody turned on 
uh, bug detector, they just seen normal frequencies. When hiding under those normal frequencies was the actual bug transmission. And he thought that was beyond genius. Uh, it, it just really floored him that it was so sophisticated what they had done. And over time, he listened under different conditions and he heard mysterious clicks. And a click is a burst transmission. It's, it sounds like a, a click when you're listening to it on audio. And also, those clicks moved around in frequency. He found 16 different frequencies that hopped around. And so he knew it wasn't random. You, you can actually, believe it or not, when you flush a toilet, you get a click on an RF receiver because it generates static and so forth. <clears throat> but it doesn't hop around in frequency, and it's not very regular. And he also found that he only heard these clicks during working hours. He never, not during working hours. So he, he knew two things. He'd found the bug. He was actually listening to the bug or bugs. And he knew that it wasn't voice, that it had to be data or text. In those days, we're talking 1978, it was almost certainly some kind of text, meaning from some kind of text processing, like an optical character reader or printer or something of that kind. And uh, so he basically, by listening to what the Russians listened to and reconstructing what they had done, he figured out that, yeah, there's a bug and yeah, it's operating right now. Yeah. But he just couldn't find the actual sort of source of the actual bug itself. Well, now we, now we get into the real tragedy of the story, which is yeah. politics mm. in the book. I not only mention the clicks that he heard, but I make reference to other things he was doing that I can't explicitly say what they were because they're still classified. What I do in the book is I say, look, I used to be a Russian cyber analyst. I speak some Russian, and I've translated a bunch of Russian text from the time and from now. And I said, okay, this is what the Russians knew how to do in that time. So if Gandhi knew how to do what the Russians knew how to do, this is what he could have been doing. But here's the bottom line. What Gandhi told me was he got absolute smoking gun proof of what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, it was... It was, you know, I said that in intelligence, you almost never get, here's a smoking gun, X marks the spot. Well, he, no reasonable person or even unreasonable person would look at his evidence and say, oh, I, I don't believe it. Yeah. And yet that is what happened. So he, he briefed, the, he gave quite a detailed briefing back in Washington to the CIA and State Department and other departments. And the CIA and the State Department pretty much uh, played down what he found, didn't they? I think that's a mild statement. They just <laughs> believe it. And, and that's a very interesting thing. Yeah. You can present someone absolute proof and they still won't believe it. And it gets into what Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist economist, calls uh, cognitive biases. And, you know, it kind of boils down to we believe what we expect and what we want. And we don't believe what we don't expect and we don't want. And what Gandhi was presenting was something that no one expected or wanted. And uh, on top of that, you have. State Department and CIA responsible for embassy security, and the arch enemy NSA and comes and says, "You guys have screwed up. Mm. You've been you've been had for years, and you've been blind to it. And here it is. Well, no one wants to hear that. No, no, exactly. I mean, like, yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, what was at stake other than the secrets being given away? What was politically at stake for the CIA or the State Department if they were found to being lax in security? Well. It would have been a huge embarrassment. 
um, <clears throat> on the one hand, and this is careers were at stake. Mm. How could you're responsible for security and you allowed, you know, a leak that got our people killed and got intelligence collection turned off? That's not going to be good for your career. That's not going to be good for your agency. But beyond that, if we're trying to recruit spies and they think that there's a leak, mm. they're not going to work for us because they're going to get arrested, tortured, and executed, which is not an incentive to spy for us. So it not only is bad for careers, it's bad for business. So for them to acknowledge that there was a problem that they hadn't identified and hadn't fixed yet would have been not only catastrophic to their careers and their reputation, but it would have made very difficult. And then the other issue is, uh, and I, I'll be ginger in how I describe this, but the intelligence that we get and discuss isn't only the stuff that we collect. We have partnerships with other entities that we swap information with and we share stuff. And if those entities believe that we're not secure, you know, they're not going to share stuff. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. While Scandi had been doing his investigation, um, Hathaway had been approached by a potential new Russian source, hadn't he? And he was keen to get permission to run him because he's denied from running human sources. And so he needed... um, he needs to get permission from HQ to to run um, his potential source. Can you talk to us a little bit about that time? Yeah, there was a guy named Adolf Tokachev who was an engineer that did what we call avionics. It's the electronics on fighter airplanes, and in particular, the radar on the MiG aircraft. And he had approached a guy named Fulton, who was Hathaway's predecessor, and dropped notes on his car and so forth. And... Uh, you see, remember I talked about dangles, where a lot of times walk-ins, people who volunteer to spy for us, are actually dangles by the other side. Mm. And I go into a long discussion in the chapter on how that happens and why that happens and the problems that it raises. Uh, but uh, finally, what happened with this guy is he got frustrated. He said, look, I want to help you guys. So he actually gave them about 10 pages of documents. And I I described this story by literally reprinting the CIA official history of what happened. And the CIA took those documents, gave them to the U.S. Air Force, who looked at them and said, this is gold. you got to run this guy. This stuff is like, oh, my God. Um, And so that plus the uh, fact that they had Gandhi on the case got the CIA director to uh, allow them to run this particular asset. And yeah. he became known as the billion dollar spy. That's it. Yeah. The famous book that's come out uh, in the last couple of years, isn't it? Yeah. And so that was, uh, he was very keen to be able to run him. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not exactly clear on what role Gandhi's efforts had in getting that turned back on. Uh, I think that may be also one of the reasons why CIA and state, particularly CIA, could not acknowledge that there was a problem. That he can found because that might have gotten in the way of getting permission to run Tolkachev. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, despite the negative reaction to Gandhi's findings, um, a number of other incidents happened over time as well uh, that uh, that kind of was starting to build a case to say that Gandhi was correct. And, um, and this led to kind of renewed official interest in 1982. And a second investigation was launched at the at the embassy. Um, can you sort of tell us about some of the, the things that led to that investigation and what that investigation sort of found? Well, there were multiple investigations. Uh, one of them had to do with the construction of the new embassy. Mm. The, forever, they've been trying to build a new chancery building, what you'd think of as an embassy, where most operations are. And finally, they got started. And in 1982, a team went over there and found that the new embassy was just riddled with bugs and mysterious things, not exactly like the chimney antenna, but equally mm. baffling. Mm. So they came back and said, well, there's a lot of stuff in here <clears throat> and we don't even know what all of it is, but we guarantee you the place, the entire building is basically one big bug. So that was the problem. And there were other issues too at that time. Yeah, FBI went over there and said, they looked at the, protocols and procedures and said, this place is catastrophically unsafe for all the reasons that Gandhi had done. And Gandhi himself had been over there again uh, for various reasons and had sent his team yet a third time. So there were multiple investigations, all of which found the same thing. The place leaked like a sieve. And all of which the State Department and CIA uh, downplayed or denied. Uh, CIA, when it came out that the new embassy building was bugged, said, yeah, it's bugged, but it's nothing we can't handle. Let's go ahead with construction and we'll build countermeasures to get around it. Well, eventually in the late 80s, they said, you know what? We don't understand what they've done to us. We can't guarantee the place is secure. So Reagan, before he left office, ordered that the embassy be torn down and rebuilt from scratch using only American construction uh, people. But interestingly, that didn't happen. George Bush the first overruled him, and the bottom floors of the embassy were never destroyed. They just rebuilt some of the top floors on the premise that you can build a secure building on a foundation and lower floors that are insecure. Interesting. <laughs> I know, you laugh. You laugh, and it just on its face that says, well, huh? I yeah. With that. <laughs> that's mad <laughs> so well the CIA, so the basically it's about the fall of 1982 after these multiple investigations the nsa director called gandhi in his office and caught him by surprise um can you tell us about what that call was about and the implications of it well he called him on the phone and told him that the cia director had got off the phone with him and told him to cease and desist uh, you're making too much trouble you're going around town making all kinds of wild claims. Go back to making and breaking codes. Cease and desist. This is not your business. So basically, he was turned off. And that's controversial. I actually interviewed quite a bit of people like uh, Gates, uh, who was the former CIA director, and Burton Gerber, who was the head of the Russia desk in Soviet Eastern Europe. Hmm. And they said that call never happened. They said that could not have happened. That would not have happened. Uh Gandhi says it did happen because it was the worst day of his life. Mm. And I don't actually know. That's a very important point that I spent months and months investigating because it, it was important to get it right. 
Yeah. And I don't actually know what happened. I suspect that what might have happened is that uh, <clears throat> General Farr had been under tremendous pressure because of the rivalry with NSA and CIA. And NSA officially was under CIA, actually, in those days. And I think that he may have maybe embellished a little bit what the CIA told him about it. Yeah. Because um, I believe Gates and I believe Gerber and I believe Gandhi. So the only explanation I have is that uh, it's possible, even likely, that the NSA director said, look, this is creating too much political heat for me at a time that I don't want this heat. I'm going to turn things off. But in 1983, a discovery in the French embassy got things turned back on. Mm. Well, yeah. Do you want to talk to us about the 1983 French embassy episode? Yeah. A technician in the French embassy, uh, and I have to make a point about this. My wife is French and she's also a card-carrying Screen Actors Guild member. Oh, cool. And we are talking about making this into a movie. So we're trying to figure out how do we get her into this. And so – Yeah, excellent. So as the part. <laughs> technician in the French embassy in Moscow, right? Uh, yeah. Her French is excellent, by the way, I, I must say. Uh, anyhow um, – she, uh, well, anyhow, the, the, this technician in, Fran in the French embassy in Moscow finds an anomaly in an optical character reader. So you type something mm. out, you run it through a scanner, it gets put into digital form and transmitted over a secure line back to Paris. Okay. Yeah. Well, they found a bug in this thing that they didn't understand what it was doing. And it turned out that <clears throat> in a very unusual show of cooperation, the French counterintelligence general who was in charge of this, had worked at NATO with the head of NSA, General Farr. And he calls him and he says, hey, you know what? We can't figure this thing out. <clears throat> Could you send someone over here? So Gandhi sends someone there to look at it. And he comes back and makes a report. And the report is this thing is ultra sophisticated. I talk about what it is in the book. And that becomes the catalyst for ultimately resolving the mystery. Excellent. Well, we don't want to give away the ending, but... Um... But uh, one quick thing. So the deputy director of the NSA then, who was Walt Dealey, then met with Gandhi, didn't he, um, to discuss the, the problem with the Russian embassy and the fact that uh, that the whole investigation effectively had been shut down. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of what Dealey did to get things going again? Yeah, Dealey was the deputy director for information security. So he yeah. was kind of like the number three guy at NSA responsible for protecting our most valuable secrets. And he looks at this thing and he calls Gandhi in because they had a relationship. Uh, and he says, look, uh, we've got to get over there and find what's going on. And Gandhi says, I can't. I've been turned off by the CIA director. And Dealey goes, well, what would it take to get you back in the game? And Gandhi jokingly, sarcastically says, well, like a letter from the president of the United States. So Dealey nods, leaves. Three days later, he comes back with a letter from Ronald Reagan saying, Gandhi, go. This, he didn't mention Gandhi by name, but basically it says, you know, get over there to Moscow, resolve it one way or another. And what Dealey had done is he'd gone around the NSA director, gone around the his boss, the secretary of defense, gone around his boss, the national security advisor, and gone right to the president of the United States. He'd walked into his office and said, we got to do this. And so Reagan <clears throat> didn't want to take sides, but he was concerned about it. And he said, look, get to the bottom of it one way or another. But, and not in writing, he said, it don't take forever. Hmm. Get on with it. And Dealey kind of established a three-month 
deadline on, on solving the problem. And so with that letter, uh, Reagan had also said, don't tell anybody, don't tell CIA. I'm going to tell George Shultz and I'm going to make sure he's the secretary of state at the time that he cooperates, but um, don't tell anybody else. So Gandhi was back in the game and the hunt was on and ultimately, uh, you know, the book says what happened. Yeah. And we don't want to spoil it. So if anybody wants to find out what happened, they will have to read the book. Um, so just one thing that your book does really well um, is at the end, it kind of reflects on sort of lessons for now about what sort of Russia's been up to. Um, and and you talk about cognitive biases and things earlier. I mean, there's all sorts of denial about what Russia's up to. But uh, it, for many people who've been watching this for some time, the writing appears to be on the wall. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on this episode and Russia today? Well, you have to go back to looking at things from the Russians' point of view. <clears throat> and... Uh, it, it makes you really understand why they do what they do and makes you believe that they're doing it. We're the West. So we think we're the good guys, but to Russia, the West is Napoleon and Hitler. And also, and this is maybe something people in the United States would, well, I'll, I'll, I'll describe it in terms that maybe the people in the UK could relate to. Let's imagine you're the UK and you've got Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and England. Okay, that's the UK, right? And let's say that you've also got as allies, as hard as it is to Belize, France, and Germany, and so forth. And so you're doing pretty good. <clears throat> the Cold War is over, and now France and Germany and the Netherlands are in the Warsaw Pact, not NATO. And, oh, by the way, Scotland is also not longer yours, and it's in the Warsaw Pact. So you've lost all your allies and you've lost part of your country and part of your country is now with the enemy. Well, that's what's happened to Russia. All of the Warsaw Pact allies, pretty much with the exception of Belarus and maybe the eastern part of Ukraine, are now in our sphere and, uh, and they've lost all of their allies. They're now in NATO. So how would we feel? How would the UK feel if that had happened to them? You'd get pretty nervous, wouldn't you? It would, especially with Scotland, yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly what's happened to Russia. And I think we have to respect that and understand that. You look at their motivations and think of them as evil and this, that, and the other. You know, they look at the West as a ever-present threat for good reasons. And there's been a lot of encroachment into their sphere of influence and they're near abroad. So if you wait for bad things to happen to you, it's not going to end well. So they're very proactive. And their strategy is really, <clears throat> I'm going to oversimplify, but uh, they have a strategy that says, we got to know what they're doing. We got to read their intentions and capabilities. So they put a huge amount of emphasis on spying. But what they learned in this story that I tell in the book, the spy in Moscow station, <clears throat> is that if you get really aggressive spying on America and you get caught, the worst thing that will happen is America will tear itself apart arguing about it. And that's exactly what's happened today. And I believe it's likely that 
they purposely allowed themselves to be caught interfering in the U.S. election. You know, you take the hack of the Democratic National Committee where the emails that came out that were so embarrassing and so forth. The Russians are the best in the world at cyber hacking. If they wanted to hide their hand, I'm sure they could have done it better. I don't think they did want to hide their hand. I think they wanted to be caught in a way that they could still deny and uh, produce the effect that it has produced. And it's going on to this day. I mean, the headlines are still all about this. And so <clears throat> um, I think that uh, that's the lesson for today, that they've been doing this to us for a long time. We taught them how to treat us. And if we tear ourselves apart because of things they did, then they win. And, you know, in a way, I got to take my hat off to them. It's a very elegant strategy. With minimum investment, you get maximum impact. In fact, um, I have read uh, and translated some, uh, you know, the Russians, believe it or not, do have strategic think tanks and military uh, kind of strategic publications in which their top military and strategic thinkers talk about the way they look at the world. And what you've seen emerge in the last 10 years is the belief they don't need military to accomplish many of their strategic tasks, like neutralizing NATO. They can do yeah. what they call active measures and information operations. And they said it's cheaper, it's better, it has no, uh, it's not kinetic, so it doesn't kill people, and it's just as effective. And uh, it's clear that that's what they're doing. And uh, like I say, it's it's potent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes a lot of sense in some respects because they can keep their military spend down. Um, and I think I don't know if this is one hundred percent correct, but from what I've read, if if Russia and America were to get involved in the military engagement, America probably still could outgun Russia. Um, so you have to fight smart, don't you? Really, that is absolutely right, and. Uh... You know, I think that the one thing I think listeners should understand about Russia is they don't succeed despite having so few resources. I believe they succeed because they have so few resources. It causes them to be clever. Your, your countryman, Winston Churchill, said, uh, gentlemen, we're out of money. We now have to start to think. <laughs> And the Russians don't have any money, so all they do is think. So it's kind of like I, if you were training for the Olympics in the high jump and you grew up on Jupiter, and now you get to come to Earth and compete, who's going to win? You know, the Soviet-Russian system has gravity. It holds you down, but you get some amazing high jumpers. <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> Well, just before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add that's important to you on this topic or what we've previously been discussing? Yeah, I think that the most important message in the book, and I wrote the book for a reason. I want to get a message out. And the message is beyond this, what I call the cyber blind spot, the area where the Russians are way ahead of us and probably eating our lunch in all kinds of horrible ways. Yeah. Uh, but more important than that, because cyber is just another kind of weapon, and weapons come and go, but people are always the same. And <clears throat> this warfare that we have internally in our bureaucracies, 
up to a point is actually quite healthy because you want diversity. You don't want a monoculture. You want mm. different lines of thought. Uh, there, dialogue and conflict is very healthy up to a point. But almost always that point gets exceeded and things get very unhealthy. And we become our own worst enemy. And the Russians absolutely know this. I mean, if for no other reason, they have their own internal squabbles. FSB, GRU, SVR, and the Presidential Protection Unit, they all hate each other over there too. So they know firsthand about internecine squabbles and infighting. And, and they, they, they are masters at using it. Um, and so the, my main message is we need leadership that's going to keep that stuff under control, not eliminate it. You're never going to do that. And I have firsthand experience of this. I was promoted to be associate director of national intelligence uh, when Congress created this thing after 9-11 to make sure the intelligence services and FBI cooperated so that other 9-11 didn't happen. And what I found was that all we did was create another tribe for the other Washington tribes to hate and loathe. <laughs> so we did unify the intelligence community. They all hated us. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and is it, well, um, as an outsider, is it still that bad? Probably. Um, yeah. Honestly, I'm not that close to it anymore. But people don't change. Uh, you know, people have told me it's not as bad as it used to be. I don't know. I think it probably is. And uh, mm. it, it, it will be. I mean, again, we, we're tribal in our genes. I wrote an article recently for Psychology Today uh, called, uh, you know, the psychology behind the Russian hacking of the election. And I point out, I get into, as a neuroscientist, I get into the evolutionary psychology of tribalism. Mm. And why we're tribal. I mean, when, when humans engage in behavior, it's actually usually for a very good reason. Evolution wired these proclivities into our brain for survival. And it's just that when it gets out of balance, things go bad. Yeah. Like we like fat and sweet because we need the nutrients so we don't starve to death. But if we do too much of that, we get diabetes and we die of heart disease. It's like that. Everything about the human condition is about balance. And what I point out is that leaders in government need to understand this, that if they want to keep their country safe, they've got to keep the internal fighting under control. Mm, mm, definitely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? I have a website, um, drhasseltine.com. That's drhasseltine.com. My wife, uh, Dr. Chris Gilbert, and I write on mind-body medicine, and we have a site together called doctorsimpossible.com, and uh, we have a book uh, called The Listening Cure, which came out last year about my wife's techniques on uh, mind-body medicine, and I described the neuroscience of it. A little different than spying. Yeah, uh, that sounds good, though. You can just Google me. There's all kinds of uh, stories about it. Uh, you know, I have a strange background going from Disney to NSA. And so there was a lot of news coverage of that. Yeah. And I write a blog called Long Fuse Big Bang on Psychology Today that uh, you can go to. And I write about neuroscience. I write about politics, intelligence. I write about all kinds of things. 
Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed chatting about your book. It's such a such a good book. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the interview. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.